Broadcasting live from hell, this is The Monstrous Feminine, the podcast where horrible women talk about horror. My name is Louisa, and I'm joined by my coven, Mila, Taya, and Zeba. This week, we are going to delve into the history of black horror, or horror noir as coined by Dr. Robin R. Means Coleman. We're hitting pause on our breakdown of female horror tropes as listed by Barbara Creed. Although we love feminist horror and Professor Creed, we also feel that these discussions are often kept separate from conversations of race and horror. For this episode, we are covering all aspects of black representation, the good and the bad, so stay tuned! To begin with, we will be discussing the era of black exploitation horror, starting with the legendary 1972 film Black Killer, directed by William Crane. We will then talk about the polarizing 1992 film Candyman, directed by Ber- is it Bernard or Bernard? I think it's Bernard. Bernard, because he's English. Oh no, because no, I think it because it has an R after the E and then another R after the A. Well, I don't respect that man, so say his name however you want, and then people can. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going again. I'm going to go for that sentence. We would then talk about the polarizing 1992 film Candyman, directed by Bernard Rose. Finally, we are going to wrap up by discussing the new era of black horror, as initiated by Jordan Peele's 2017 masterpiece, Get Out. Hey guys! Uh, hey, so since our hey, Hi. so since since our last episode, um, the world has gone to shit, and we decided to make episode three dedicated to black horror, black representation in horror, black stories, black characters. Um, because of the global Black Lives Matter movement and what's going on in the world, which uh, sort of touches on many, many topics. But because we are a horror movie, horror analysis podcast, we decided that this would be a good time to sort of tackle representation, uh, racial representation in horror. So how's everyone been since the last episode? Um, pretty pissed, <laughs> pretty angry, <laughs> pretty fed up. <laughs> Yeah, anyone else? I went back to the US because I was like scared travel would be cut off or something insane like that. And honestly, kind of correct, <laughs> mainly because of Corona instead. Uh, it's been pretty terrible, but I feel like, to be honest, this isn't like a new thing in the US. It's just because everyone is looking at it right now, it seems like this is worse than normal but I think all of this goes on on a regular basis and we just don't hear about it because it's not in the news cycle or on people's radar so I guess in a way it's slightly better just because people know what's going on and it's not like innocent people are dying and we're not hearing about it as much although it probably still is happening but I mean some of the cases that we're seeing coming up now that everyone's discussing are from last year um, or from months ago that people are bringing up now so I think it's better that we're starting to see so many people demand justice and hopefully we see real change and I think this episode is great. It's like a fun way to talk about black art and not a way that feels like another extension of trauma form. That was really eloquent. You're so you're so articulate and I'm just like fuck America, fuck cops. I'm tired of this fucking shit. <laughs> it's like and then Ty is like running a campaign over there. I'm like, "Oh, okay." Got my vote. Yeah, I'd vote for you. Ophelia, call the police. Sure. Playing Fuck the Police by NWA. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. The young nigga got it back. 
First up, we were talking about the 1972 cult classic Blackula, directed by William Crane. In this film, William Marshall plays Mama Wande, an African prince who's been turned into a vampire by Dracula after failing to recruit Dracula to the side of slavery abolitionists. Two centuries later, Mama Wande, now Blackula, wakes up in a coffin and begins wreaking havoc on 1970s LA. Almost two centuries ago, the ruling elders of my people sent me, yes, and my bride to Europe on a mission to protest the slave trade. The slave trade? On that mission, I myself was enslaved. My wife murdered, and I was placed under the curse of the undead. Our assassin was the vampire Count Dracula. Basically, you know how, like, in terms of iconic black voices, everyone says Morgan Freeman? I really think they missed an opportunity here, because I think William Marshall is actually... You know, he should be the voice, you know, the voice of God. We really missed out there. <laughs> and actually, his voice is so soothing that it, he could be like your grandpa, Taya, I feel. You both have the similarly <laughs> lovely voices. Voice wise. <laughs> just voice wise. Just voice wise. None of his talent, just his voice. I mean, you. I don't know. I've seen your acting ability, so. I do not want to talk about my acting past from my forced film classes. I feel like he was he was the, the Morgan Freeman of... His day? In terms of people recognizing his voice and it being like a sort of universally loved voice, he probably was. Maybe not. <laughs> I watched those of interviews and people were like, we loved your voice. Oh, was it a thing? Like people have already made it a thing? Because I have not... The only thing that's trickled down to my ears is uh, Morgan Freeman being the iconic voice and I just think that that's a missed opportunity. Blackula, Dracula's soul brother. So how did you guys feel about the movie? Um, I found it like a bit hard to watch because it was like kind of like the overall feeling of the movie was like sheer embarrassment to be honest. But... <laughs> See here's the thing about black exploitation is like they are bad movies. I think we shouldn't be afraid to like say that, especially because the budgets that they had were just not on the level of other movies coming out in the 70s. They really had to fight for like production value. They really ha couldn't pay their actors that well, so they were relatively unknown actors. Like the writers were people who were not going to be in other writers' rooms, especially black writers or directors. So like fundamentally most of them are so cringy and so bad and now looking back on them I kind of like the camp of it all like if you find one ones with like Foxy Brown or those like good cop infiltrates XYZ movies like those can be fun now looking back on Blackula has its like moments I think the fashion is great I think the music is yeah. great I think the visuals are fun but like most black exploitation movies are bad and that's okay <laughs> I think on like a scale of zero to fucking camp this movie is it wasn't even that camp there wasn't so much of the like like in your face campy fun as what i was expecting there were like waves of camp and then it was like almost almost serious um which i guess i, I expected just from you guys talking about it, i expected something a lot more intense I don't know what you're talking about. I thought it was the most ridiculous thing. I would say it's full camp on the scale of one to fucking camp. <laughs> it was like, I was like, what is this? It was everything I thought it would be from when my dad told me about it and I googled the movie poster and I was like, that's a hate crime. And then I watched it and I was like, indeed. I think I'm watching like 
sickeningly camp movies and my yeah maybe maybe your camp skills skewed because I was like I am into musicals oh god (laughs) ew yeah okay that's a podcast review I'm not listening to Um, so should we talk about what horror looked like before Blackula? Because obviously Blackula was iconic because it was like, when we look back, we see it as the sort of first black horror that they there was that initiated a whole bunch of other black exploitation horror. But before this, um, Dr. Robin Armines Coleman makes a distinction in her book Horror Noir about black horror, which is content horror created by black creatives and actors and filmmakers, and then blacks in horror. So before um, the sort of black exploitation era, when we go back to the just earlier, like in the 1900s, we have films like *The Birth of the Nation* in 1915, where we have black people in horror, but not really. It's just white people in blackface, and it's them portraying really horrible derogatory stereotypes um, of black people to the end of glorifying the KKK and the Confederacy in America, and it's awful. So this is kind of if you look back on it, this is kind of on the timeline of horror noir because it's our first glimpse of black people being monstrous, but as um, they are the monsters. So it's kind of included in horror noir, even though it's not really black horror. I would find Birth of a Nation really hard to consider, like, be a horror film because it's just a straight up race propaganda film. That movie is not like horror horror and like traditional horror sense it's like horrifying that people watched it can we also talk about how after people stopped making classic black exploitation movies like there's the stereotype of the black person's the first person to die in a horror movie so they're not the monster anymore they're not the the thing that holds power they're not the thing that we should be afraid of it's like if there is a black character in a horror movie that's made by white people they will be the first person to die and it's like a trope in the way that the final girl is a trope like the black person is the first the first girl um and i don't really know why that is i guess because they're like the most disposable actor or the most disposable character or the person that we don't need two and a half hours to get to know they're just i think like violence against a black body is is considered like the thing that happens before the real terror starts. If yeah, that makes sense. Um, when I was watching, I was like, it's strange that he would be the one to get punished for failing to get Dracula to be on the side of abolitionists instead of abolitionists. I mean, obviously, black people were abolitionists at the time too because they didn't want to be slaves. But I was like, what on earth? Like that that plot just shook me, and I was like, how would he be responsible for this himself? Did you know that um, William Marshall added that bit in? Like the actor who's playing Blackula, he was um, he added in this whole black story, the back black story. I mean back story, <laughs> but you know what is a black story? Because <laughs> he basically wanted this whole um, plot of you know he. I think I, I actually found this like interesting video uh, interview of him. So maybe insert clip. Now, this is, you actually convinced them to change the script, and as we saw in the movie, uh, Blackula, before he became Blackula, was a prince from Africa. Prince Mamu Warode was How, his name. Was there much resistance at that time to Absolutely. do this? Absolutely. <laughs> what did they say to you? What kinds of things were said oh, to you? Oh, I don't, I don't think that will work. Uh, we don't want to deal with the subject of slavery. I said, yeah, well, we didn't want to either. Had to. <laughs> and I think that it hasn't been dealt with properly. This is a wonderful time to illustrate that there were African people who were concerned. 
He was like, I want nothing to do with the construction of Blackula. Like, that's all your direction. I'm gonna talk, I'm gonna try to introduce a character, inject some, like, Swahili and some African, um, like, ancestry into the movie because he thought, you know, this is not gonna be relatable to your target audience, which is black people. And if you just have a story with, with a black vampire, like, you're gonna need to him to have a relatable and compelling backstory, which would be trying to fight slavery. So that's why there's kind of this random five minutes at the beginning. He was basically saying there would be no reason for him to attack other black people unless he was injected with Dracula's curse of racism. So the venom or virus or whatever you want to call vampirism condition is his own version of enslavement. And they make, uh, Dracula makes a point when he's changing him. He's like injecting this sort of animal nature, this animalism into him which he, at the beginning, like, accuses Mamuwalde of being like, oh, he says something like, oh, but you're from the jungle. And then Mamuwalde also accuses him of being like an animal because of his his views of slavery as having merit. Yeah. When he said, like, injecting racism into him, he is kind of, like, cursing him with so many double ironies. Yeah. That bit about you know, having bits of Swahili and, like, having a very particular, like, the African prince sort of narrative is so indicative of the time because this was the moment in like black history when people were like african-americans specifically really wanted to reclaim african roots and pan-africanism and didn't really know how to do it i made a little note that this is early hotep ideology because he couldn't just be a regular black guy he had to be royalty he he had to have this I, all the girls are light-skinned, like, let's talk about it. Mm. Like, all the love interests are these light-skinned girls with these, like, cute little fros. You know, choosing Swahili words, Swahili is a is a pan-African language that's, like, of the diaspora. It really is, like, indicative of that 72, 73 inability for African-Americans to know what to claim. I think it was how a lot of people thought and how a lot of people still think and I think that we've sort of gone beyond that and said okay we don't necessarily need to all be descended from African royalty that is not historically (laughs) accurate but like I think that's where that came from and a lot of people would have found a lot of solace in that backstory yeah I think people did because that's why it was like it had mixed reviews at the time but it was a huge hit because I think people really resonated with that at least black audiences did I don't know I feel like my mom said when she saw this movie when she was like younger and like my grandma said as well that they didn't like it and they found it incredibly problematic even at the time i mean i get the backstory and i do see what you guys are saying about it but at the same time i'm like it was like five minutes (laughs) it was like a very short thing that just felt like it was thrown in there and like the justification to attack your own people as well also zayba how you mentioned the the, all the women were light-skinned i was like this movie has so many problems within it, which is obviously how black exploitation films are going to be. But I was like, what? <laughs> like, I, I find it hard to believe like anyone during that time was also like, this is it. This is the movie. I think there are hoteps of today who would like it. Like, <laughs> like I think the majority of people with sense would look at that and be like, that's ridiculous. But I absolutely like know folks who, you know, have that sort of mindset. But don't you think that... I mean, obviously it's problematic, but we're going back to, like, a beginning portrayal. So, like, anytime you go back in time and look at Black representation, it's always fraught with contradictions. And, like, there are, like, there's nothing that's solely empowering or something that's solely, well, no, there's loads of things that are solely negative. But you mean, like, even the empowering stuff is going to have lots of, like, nuances within it. 
Um, but I think one thing it does well with that um, potentially building on the time but clumsily inserted backstory is that it does frame him as a more sympathetic victim or a, a monster, but not like a clear-cut monster. Like I think it, it works to frame him as somebody who's been a victim of Dracula's racism and been enslaved by him, and that's why he's, you know, biting other black people because he's continuing this curse of enslavement. I think I'm having, like, the same problem with this as I have with Candyman, which is, like, both of them basically endured violence by white people and was like, in return, I'm going to inflict pain upon my own people. And that, to me, is, like, very hard to comprehend. But yeah. I get, like, during during these times, and even today, like, a lot of black writers and directors have a lot of issues with funding, and the studio kind of steers you where they want you to go. Um, so I'm sure if they were like, I want a movie where he's like very pissed off about slavery and he was bit by Dracula and he decides as revenge to go kill white people. I'm sure that would not have flew, flown at all. Obviously no studio would have approved something like that at the time. Yeah. I know what, one thing that academic author and author Tanana Reeve do said was the one thing black exploitation era did was it let black people tell a version of a horror like it gave them a voice that they didn't have before it's not the best representation but it's kind of like well at least there's some representation there's definitely moments that i thought were somewhat empowering like little digs like they snuck little digs in there like how he accuses the police officer of not caring about the black people black victims or the black murders um and when he when the police officer says, well, maybe it's the Panthers doing it. And he's like, no, the Panthers wouldn't do that. And so there's these very obvious, like, little signals in there where they're trying to make a more empowering narrative for for Black audiences. I think it's, I, you touched on it, Ty, when you talked about, like, Hollywood producers and their power in determining how it ultimately comes out of the film. Even if you can sneak in, like, a few references, a line here and there, it's difficult to create a film that was like through and through radical. It's a problem of like, you want the representation, but black people can only get the representation if they're the monster. So what can you do within this framework? Okay, we're gonna make a slightly more sympathetic monster with this enslavement backstory. So it's kind of like, but, but he's still the monster. So we're kind of operating within a limited framework here. Um, which is kind of dealing with the legacy from films like The Birth of the Nation, um, where that was showcasing black monstrosity. So it's like slowly, slowly trying to move away from that. It's not doing the best job, but at least it's something. I wanted to ask you guys, what do you think of... Um, the how he looks, Blackula, when he's like in full like attack mode because I read one um I read one interpretation which was by I think Noelle Carroll ethnicity race monstrosity an essay and it was saying that this is tapping into a long-standing association of the black person with the simian and monstrosity but then I read another interpretation and to be fair I'm not very much convinced by the second one but it was by Dale Hudson in an essay called Vampires of Color they were saying that actually He's hairy like a um, like a black panther, but I if that obviously to me was a reach. But he was saying that like any white victim he bit because there were some white people that I think so got like bit. the police officer. Yeah, but it was like they were relegated to a more outskirts 
Um, they lo- they were robbed of their privilege and also enslaved, so they were relegated to a more outcast um, existence. So in that way, he could be an empowering figure. But I was like, that interpretation doesn't really work if he's mostly black- biting black people, which he does. So, but I wondered what you guys thought of his like overly hairy weird afro eyebrows this might be a shallow interpretation but i was under the impression that vampires were supposed to be sexy and if we go back to the original dracula the point of like the og vampire narrative is that they're supposed to be seductive and i think there is a lot of reclamation of black sexuality in this movie and a lot of black exploitation movies i think people don't know how to reconcile what is considered white white seduction and like traditional white sexiness with what a black vampire would look like that's why the vampires in twilight are ashy we don't know how to make them pale we don't know how to make them like (laughs) appealing to women we don't know why people would fall for them or fall into their trap if they're ugly it doesn't make any sense (laughs) so that thing of like he looks like a monkey i didn't think about that i don't want to think about that too hard honestly i don't buy the black panther narrative at all it was all very hard to buy especially because that woman who looked like his wife the one that he was seducing and fell in love with sort of it was implied that she was under some sort of hypnosis or some sort of vampire magic but like the the lore of vampires especially women vampires but dracula in particular is that they are sensual that they're sexual that they're seductive so i was confused why this one like looked more like a werewolf yeah that's what one of the critics was saying like what there's literally no reason for him to look like a werewolf because it's just it's just mixing lore and it's like why did they do that like why did they choose to make him look like that i think you're right it's like how do you reconcile that he's supposed to be sexy if we're still operating in a world of limited portrayals of black sexuality i think you're right on the money the fact that he's reluctant to like he he knows that it's a curse and it's like a type of enslavement so he deliberately does not want to bite her but he wants to be with her in immortality but literally just like twilight like honestly plagiarism um he waits for her to be dying (laughs) to turn her (laughs) yeah yeah so so Stephanie Meyer basically were, is a confirmed Blackula fan. That's what I'm saying here. I was about to say, are you suggesting that Mormon Stephanie Meyer is yes. a fan of OG exploitation films that says, let me make this uh, the Purity Ring special? Zeba, that's exactly what I'm trying to get across here. <laughs> I think they do that in like every vampire thing, though, where like the girl wants to turn and he's like, no. No, you don't know how bad this life is. Oddly enough, like in werewolf movies, I feel like no one ever says, turn me into a werewolf. (laughs) Yeah. No one wants to be a dog. You don't have to be one like all day. It's just a full moon. So that's like a more limited (laughs) existence of being a monster. But no one ever wants to do that. They're like, no, keep that to yourself. Vampire the hot. Yeah, before Twilight, the vampire, the werewolf, sorry, were not sexy. But then Twilight with all their... spicy white people okay but the bestiality line is a thin one and it's one that i would rather not cross but no i I also um this uh other critic harry ben schoff in black exploitation horror films generic reappropriation or reinscription um he was saying that the the romanticization is like a deliberate uh, political tactic to tap into as well in that it blurs the line between monstrosity and sympathy. Like 
I think it's more of a tragedy if to watch him die at the end because he's so heartbroken and it, it helps in his sort of martyrdom um, if he's like in love and he's doing, he's like, well, you know what? I have no reason to continue this existence without my partner. So I'm going to go like I'm, I'm out because he could have just been like, whatever, I'm immortal. I'm going to keep enslaving other black people. Goodbye. But he instead he's like suicide. It's humanizing. I think this movie is like slightly better in empowerment simply because of the ending where he dies and it's like the martyrdom and it's like a return to humanity. Around this era and then of filmmaking and then thereafter, there is so much, so many black vampires. And I wanted to ask you guys, like, why do you think that is? Do you think the obvious answer of like blood mixing is a thing like do you think this vampires of color thing is a crisis over multiculturalism or a fear of like dna and like eugenics and all that playing into that racial stereotype or do you think there's another reason that people were so obsessed with making black vampires i don't know i feel like part of it is like vampires were like the go-to horror thing for like a significant period of time and that was like the only thing people could really think of. And they also like within the context of the 70s, um, in terms of filmmaking, like it was a decade in which directors were more like looking towards deconstructing genres. The other example I'm thinking of now isn't within horror, but like Blazing Saddles came out in 74, which inserted a black protagonist into the Western. I mean, it's a comedy, it's completely different. And I don't think it was necessarily with like always noble intentions, but I think it was more like a from a filmmaking perspective, like, let's just turn everything on its head. And so it sort of caught on then. I think there's also also something to be said for just immortality as a concept for like black folks. It's the same concept as like Afrofuturism. It's like, imagine a world where we didn't die. Incredible. Can't even fathom it. Um, being the most powerful thing, the fact that like the, sh- the cops can shoot right through you and you are still the most powerful thing. Like I thought that scene towards the end in that fight when they think all I have to do is like pull out a gun and the situation is over is just like, it's, it's kind of nice to watch (laughs) to, you know, just be the most powerful thing in the room. It's something so rare for black folks in life and in film. Next up, we are going to talk about the 1992 film Candyman, directed by Bernard Rhodes. In this film, a white graduate student named Helen investigates the local legend of Candyman in the Cambrini Green Project, Chicago. Candyman, played by Tony Todd, is the vengeful ghost of a lynch slave who appears and kills you if you say his name five times in the mirror. Helen, I came for you. So, who of the four of us has a crush on Candyman? Uh, I would say four out of four of us should have a crush on Candyman. I'm not going to say that I have. I'm not going to say I've tried to summon him uh, and have him hover above my form. Uh, (laughs) But I think it's a a universal attraction that uh, everyone partakes in. Like if Yaya turns into Candyman in a new one, then I will indeed share this with you. But in the old version, it's going to be a no for me. I was um, I was skeptical when Zeba said uh, she spoke of her attraction, but then I watched the film and I'm on board. I'm going to say um, that I would not, but I think the actor is a attractive, Tony Todd's attractive. 
and his voice as well. Another great voice. Um, Be my victim. It's, you know. Be my victim. Be my victim. I'm, I just might. I just might. Also with coats, something about his whole look, it came together and I was like, yep, okay, nah. I'll be a victim. His look is basically the Babadook, so... <laughs> okay, I don't want to read into that, I really don't. <laughs> so, what are you saying? <laughs> don't expose my, my, my psyche to <laughs> Okay, sorry. No, the coat, the coat is flames, the bees is next level accessory, all 2021, we're all going to be rocking, live bees. Did you know he got $1,000 each bee sting? He got stung? <gasps> they were real bees so it was like a given that he'd get stung and his in his contract for every sting he'd get a thousand dollars that's fucking hardcore a thousand dollars what an actor honestly mm-hmm. oh. we call that method <laughs> method so i guess the ultimate question testament to your attraction at zeba at mila is would you would you play Candyman? Would you summon him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it depends. It definitely depends on the circumstances and like how great my life was going at that point. But I feel like that's a risk I might be willing to make. I've played Bloody Mary, so I don't think it's much different. Uh, that was going to be my next question. Have you ever, have y'all ever played like a Candyman equivalent like Bloody Mary? I have not. No, I, I'm I'm 100% like we don't do we don't do that. I'm with you. I do not do that. I don't recognize, I don't welcome any of that. Energy. I feel like I've done all of that. I've done Bloody Mary. I've done the Ouija boards. I've anything that welcomes what the like hell? anything that welcomes like spirits into my space. Any sort of ancestor worship. I just want to see it. I just, I just want to like push the boundary. Can I just you say just broke that exactly what I said about black people don't do that? Why? <laughs> I would be the first black person to die in this movie. Should we let? Should we talk about um, Bernard Bernard? <laughs> you talk about Bernard. I love that. I love how British people say Bernard. Bernard Rose. Uh, what's his deal? He doesn't know how to how to write about black men. That's his deal. <laughs> He did he he only directed it. I think it the it was originally a play. Am I remembering this wrong? No, you're right. It's a different white author and then he's a, a white director. So he right. only directed. I misspoke, but But I think he helped uh adapt it to, to the screenplay along with short story author other white dude who I can't remember his name. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> no, just kidding. This is not necessarily his direction. In actual fact, I think, like, the way the movie is shot and, like, how it is, it's, like, a good movie, like, quality-wise. In terms of thematic and the lack of reflection on how it could immensely backfire, I think the film's really good, very compelling, um, but the lack of policing on how they're portraying Tony Todd, that's, that's the issue. I, I agree. I think the movie is, like, very watchable. It's not, like, in the same way where you're, like, the entire time you watch Black Killer, you're like, this is so unbelievable. <laughs> but, like, this one, like, you can watch it and you're, like, you're pretty into the movie. It's just, like, the plot itself and the way that the actors are manipulated and the exploitation behind it is what's the problem. But the movie itself is, like, very watchable and it's entertaining. 
I think I'm just thoroughly confused why white people even think up stories like this. Like, where did you even... Oh, God, here we go. I wasn't ready for your launch into the slander. You're like, I'm no, just like, confused why white it's people... It's genuine. Like, where did you dream that up? <laughs> he, like, adapted it from this, this story that was based in Liverpool and was like, Chicago race relations it's like wait hold on i don't think you're qualified to take that leap i think that it's if it was any any black writer or who wrote this story i find that they would have never had an ex-slave kill or a re what's the word like a ghost of a slave go and seek vengeance against other black people like i don't know if that would have even crossed a black creator's mind to do that so that's the whole like problem of the film and the story in general of Candyman like the whole legend is flawed from the very from the offset because that's just so unbelievable. And also how different is it from like this might be a reach but how different is it from the narrative that we tell in Birth of a Nation where it's like white women have to be afraid of black men black sexuality miscegenation race mixing like it's it's not condemning those things but it's it's still you know continuing a narrative that started this continuing a narrative of like racial propaganda um and Helen's character is a lot to unpack that I don't think they did a lot of in the creative process I think like at this point it's interesting that we have our monstrous feminine podcast right so we always focus on like we're or we're our sole focus or our main focus <laughs> a lot of our focus <laughs> is women and in this film we have not necessarily like in terms of like the eyes of like who's a sympathetic character it obviously is supposed to be Helen so we don't really have a monstrous feminine um but at the expense of Candyman being the monstrous figure like her whole like feminist trajectory is and innocence is based and her whole like final girl until yeah thing is based on Candyman's portrayal and his and black monstrosity basically like why is it that we with a a black couple even though luva the actress is very white light-skinned but she's black but why is it with like a a black couple it's um he doesn't have to be solely a monster but like if it's a white woman then he's a monster you know what i mean i i think there was such a like an attempted disconnect between her um and like to some extent bernadette or bernadetta her her friend them versus this like stuffy British white academic but actually Helen is the same fucking thing despite the fact she braves it and goes into the projects like she's still taking that story and using it to and like take credit for it in like the sort of elitist world of academia. I found her character very realistic like I could so see a white woman academic doing this exact project and getting in people's business and the scene that really got under my skin is when she's talking to that child like he she wants him basically she's doing like an interview yo the ethics are where are where you can't you first of all you can't interview anybody you can't talk to anybody without an ethics form period but that is a child a child whose parent is not present like that is such weird predatory behavior huge red flag Mm. and yet she's still the person we're supposed to empathize with i was thinking that that scene when she was like you can trust me and i'm like why why yeah why Why? you're coming in and 
first of all, just trespassing in some random abandoned apartment, like, that you have no business being in. Also, like, was taking photographs of people's front doors and, like, and, like, ooh, this is so, like, hood. I was, like, what? Because she was just photographing graffiti that, honestly, at the beginning that she was taking pictures of had nothing to do with Candyman anyway. I was just, like, what do you, you, like, it's some, it's, like, these are people's lives, have some respect. So she's definitely not without fault, but I think, like, yeah, she's meant to be our main hero, but it's kind of, like, mm. I feel like we've seen Helen's character, like, several times throughout history, and Please note, I am not comparing Candyman or Blackman to the other characters I'm mentioning, but, like, she's the exact same character that we see in Tarzan with Jane and with, like, the female character in King Kong where it's, like, this sympathetic, beautiful white woman goes into an environment and tries to help. And, like, they're doing the exact same thing, but somehow we're supposed to take it from a different lens and be like, oh, but it's fine because they're doing it. And, like, she doesn't mean any harm. She's just nice and innocent. Like, it's the exact same character, just repeated. But, like, okay, what do you think of um, the role of um, Myth, then, in in Candyman? Because, like, what he gets his empowerment from, even if it's so... Obviously, it's warped and problematic. He appears when people dare to say his name. It's like they're doubting the myth. They're doubting his power. So he's, like, his way of... It's warped, but his way of getting empowerment from his completely terrible horrible lynching death is to re-perpetrate the myth and try to get some power in how in like kind of reclaiming how that story is told so that's why she becomes like his ultimate goal because she's someone who's daring to challenge that myth and he's almost like he's taking that as like a kind of slight and undermining of his own power because that's the only way he can have power there were definitely pieces of this film particularly the the folklore the myth the idea of like they even refer to the newspapers as, like, circulation of truth. There was, like, pieces of the film where I'm like, you could have made such a great point here about, like, again, back to the idea of, like, white, white academia, the way that black stories are told through white voices. You could have, like, really taken that and flipped on his head, especially with, like, also the religious imagery. There could have been so much about, like, grander narratives of religion and society, but then it, like, that warped sense of, he feeds on it to survive it kind of contradicts itself yeah and there was no mention of the importance of oral history to black culture like i'm sure there's so many you know quote-unquote myths like the candy man that exist in particular cities or neighborhoods or areas or cultures or traditions and those things are taken taken seriously by black people because they represent a larger message or something to be wary of or something to remember or they're a way of invoking history so that it's not forgotten because like the tradition is just not to write it down and there you're right there could have been a really integral like exploration of why white people feel the need to write it down and also feel the need to prove that it's not true because the purpose of the story was not to just scare people the purpose of it was like let's remember this horrific thing that happened to a black person let's remember what happens when you get too close to white women it was a warning it was a message and i like part of me wanted to believe that that's what the movie was doing and that people are like interpreting it wrong because i don't want to like believe it was just completely overlooked but also um that article you sent zeba about how problematic it is for even in, like, nowadays with Black Lives Matter victims, the fact that it's 
also just horrible that he can only have power in death is what I thought was a really interesting article that you put to us because separately in our private group chat, which is really exclusive. (laughs) (laughs) But it was just... (laughs) I thought that was, like, interesting that um, even now we still have a narrative of, like, you know, you can people only pay attention when it's when they're already dead, like when it's already too late. It's so easy to read like into this too much and to like spin it into something more progressive. But could that have been like the slant that his his calls to people to remember him is like a a play on that or no? Tanana Reeve do when she when she interviewed Tony Todd, she said that he said that lots of black men in hindsight thought that it was kind of an empowering role. So we can't look at it as like, we're talking about it from a perspective of like bad representation or like problematic representation, but we can't ignore the fact that lots of people still liked this character. Um, And I I can kind of see why. I think maybe in the fact that yes, he doesn't really kill Helen, but he does, it's almost like, he does take revenge at the same time it's okay there's two things going on like for one thing i really hate the sort of predatory black man stereotype especially if we're talking about an interracial couple because often the black person in that partnership is the person who's been fetishized so it's not only just a complete stereotype and myth but it's also somewhat inaccurate of it compared to reality but um so I hate that it does that as well as it's, when it's trying to do this, but I also think that his idea of making her have to join him in the myth is kind of empowering in a way because it's like, hey, I had to suffer the consequences of our relationship because he died because they he was um, because of an interracial relationship between him as a slave and her as the slave master's daughter. Um, but he's basically trying to make her reincarnated form suffer the same consequences he did. So in a way, it's kind of empowering because it's like, you're going to have to suffer the same fate. So it's kind of like, yes, his revenge and vengeance is misplaced a lot. Like he should just go after the slave owner's descendants, but he doesn't. Um, <laughs> but like in in a limited way, I can see how that would have been like, okay, this revenge narrative of like, I'm going to make you have to be punished for our sexual deviancy back in the day now the thing that i struggle with is because she's under this hypnosis whenever like the spirit of Candyman like causes her to do harm the there's no accountability for her actions and it makes this narrative of if a, if a white woman were to do a wrong and she does plenty of wrong when she's not under hypnosis like let's be clear but he's doing it on his own accord as like a revenge plot but if she's doing something bad it has nothing to do it she, it, she must be under the spell of a black person or the like the lack of accountability and the fact that she she does all that and the police just book her they don't shoot her. They don't kill her. They don't. They don't <laughs> uh, like brutalize her in any way. They she. They just put her in handcuffs and she's able to escape. All, all the politics of like white womanhood are completely like dashed over. I think the ethics and consent that always goes with those stories where it's like a slave is dating their master and the master's son or something because you can't consent to a relationship in which someone owns you. And so like her, he's being held accountable in a way for a relationship where he's basically being manipulated into the relationship and has no real consent and agency within the relationship because even if he at any point wanted to discontinue it could he discontinue a relationship in which she is the master's daughter 
but I, yeah, but I guess that's kind of why it's, I guess, somewhat satisfying that she's being terrorized by him, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're not meant to see it that way, but I think in this, in modern age, you would look at it and think, like, if she's really the reincarnated version of, um, I think her name's Caroline, the original, um, the original person in, who was dating Candyman. Well, I can't remember his original dating name. Dating Candyman. Dating Candyman. <laughs> A.K.A. her name's so Zayba. Lucky. Um, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> so I think if yeah, if you're watching it in this day and age, and you're you're kind of thinking, okay, well, good, she kind of deserves to be haunted by him. <laughs> Not to like feed into she asked for it narrative, but she certainly inject herself into injected herself into this myth which she had no business being in in the first place. So she invited this spirit in. She said his name five times. Like she welcomed it, and then you know, so it's kind of like. A, that challenges your arrogance of this myth, which is where he has only, which is the only locus of his power right now at this point. And B, it's kind of like belated retribution for his disproportionate and extreme brutal punishment for their relationship that, like you said, Ty was, and Zepa, was ultimately her fault. There's also that point in the film when Helen is, and I think this is like the whole issue, it kind of representative of like the failings of the film. She mentions to Bernadette, she's like, it's only when a white woman gets hurt that the police take notice and she's like there's like a one line of dialogue but that's it in the film they don't develop it further I feel like in so many films they think just speaking it in one line is like enough <laughs> like that's enough for today type energy the throwaway the throwaway woke line yeah and then back to our because it, it felt so awkward when she said it and like Bernadette didn't it's not like Bernadette had anything to say about it Bernadette is also problematic <laughs> light-skinned I'm so afraid of the hood like almost validating her fear because she's light-skinned so it's like ah see she even she's afraid so these projects untouchable and I was just like oh oh just just big sigh big sigh you know what I kind of read that union as and with the baby it was kind of like a Mary Joseph Jesus type thing explain Catholic gal (laughs) I'm not touching that. What? <laughs> this is this is purely from like dipping into the whole like sainthood thing, um, the idea of myth, and then the baby, which was was fucking random. Unless it's just a baby to like to like conjure up some sort of sympathies, which not everyone cares about babies. Hey, I I like babies. Okay, you like babies, but like it's not. It's just a cheap. It's a cheap thing to use in a film. They like, they care for the baby. Um, it was a cute. It was a cute baby. Fair. They do. America loves babies. That's what Amy Dune says in Gone Girl. That's why she pretends to be pregnant. They love babies. Because Helen does say, she's like, oh yeah, I want children when playing with that baby. Yeah, she she made a point of it. Well, I think the, the black baby there has another problematic function of, again, just much in the same way that Bernadetta is like the excuse for their prejudice about going into the products. The black baby is kind of like the excuse for her actions basically it's like no 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 she's okay because she's saving a black child so obviously we have to stand that is what kind of like martyrs her because then all of the uh the residents of the project come to her funeral yeah yeah it's like some weird initiation it's like oh we accept her now it's like what (laughs) she exploited you guys and summoned Candyman back to the projects like okay but sure (laughs) but what were you saying about what's this uh catholic it's oh, not, I mean, not, so much, not, not exclusively Catholic, but I don't know why. 
And maybe it was just like, I think it's the like, they hammer it home about this idea of myth in the film. And he's always talking about this congregation, uh, Candyman. That's true. He does. He does. And his, um, and his, um, he is kind of like elevating himself to a saint-like figure in his echoing of like, he, when he's like advertising why she should join him, he's like, it's powerful and you get to be a myth and you get to blah, 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 you know. And he says, we should make yeah. a new miracle. This is what I okay. think that's that's all that together kind of led me to that. Um, right. I don't think it's like a, it doesn't come too strongly. I think it's more like, hey, if you want to go nuts and like read into this too deeply, then here's the type thing. Which we do. Which <laughs> we do. Also, the whole idea of like the Bible as like that OG narrative in well, America and especially in terms of like hijacking a sort of like Jesus is fucking Middle East and let's make him white. There's so much to read into there. I totally missed what you said because it sounded like a lot of profanity and I know it was not. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to talk about this point anymore because I don't think it's, it's not fleshed out. The fact that Candyman is meant to be the predator, especially when he slides his hook up her skirt, was extra insulting when we have a whole ass predator right there in the form of her husband or boyfriend, I think husband, who's, like, literally hooking up with his, like, 20-year-old students. I was like, and Candyman's a predator? I was, I was, I was livid. <laughs> I was livid. I was livid. Because <laughs> that, that, like, it does seem, I mean, maybe this is just, like, let's bulk out the character a bit. Why, what, what, who gives a shit about Trevor? Why is he a character? Why is he cheating? Why is he with this student? Child. Child. <laughs> well, probably graduate, but still. Helen. What's the matter, Trevor? Scared of something? Speaking of, like, very uh, terrible significant others, that really brings us to our next movie, Get Out, which is literally about having a terrible significant other and meeting her terrible family. What a segue! Fuck! (laughs) Finally, we're ending with the 2017 film Get Out, directed by Jordan Peele. In this film, Chris, played by Daniel Kaluuya, decides to visit his white girlfriend's parents during a weekend getaway. Although the family seemed relatively normal at first, Chris slowly comes to realize the brutal extent of their racism. The chores have become my sanctuary. Get out. Sorry, man. Okay. Get out! Yo! So Jordan Peele is an alum of Sarah Lawrence College, where I went. Actually, he never graduated, but he does give us the gift of all of his movies long before they come out. We get screenings, um, and there are super secret um, service agents who watch your every move to make sure you're not filming anything or tweeting during it, because we see them so far ahead of time that there aren't even trailers yet. So when I saw Get Out, nobody knew what it was about even a little bit like we were going into it completely blind we didn't know who was in it we didn't know the premise none of that there had been no press for it yet so i'm i went to a what we call predominantly white institution but obviously every single black kid on campus went to this early screening all perhaps a couple dozen of us so i watched it early everyone had these like very authentic reactions i think 
like having seen the trailer or knowing the premise or reading reviews really changes your reaction to a movie we all thought jordan peele would be there he didn't show up it's all right thank you for the gift sir and then when it finally came out in theaters and i really knew everything that was going to go on i was like i have to go see this in theaters even though i've already seen it i have to go pay for it and i'm going to go specifically for people's reactions to it and when i got in line it was super sold out there was a line out the theater and i looked around and i was like oh this is an interesting group of a lot of interracial couples like a lot of people a lot of people brought their white girlfriends to see this program um, and I, I knowing everything from months before was like oh i can't wait to watch people walk out of this like it's it's gonna be so satisfying and everyone you know they're sharing little popcorn like having their cute little moments and i could tell a lot of them were like yeah baby like i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna like take i'm gonna take you to like the this next up and coming film obviously the reactions were the same as the first time i saw it but walking out of the theater dead silence like a lot of people did not speak <laughs> <laughs> or they were like really trying to laugh it off but i was cackling and i felt comfortable cackling <laughs> because like i knew where the funny moments were obviously there are th those like beautiful comedic beats that happen and things <laughs> like that and then i was like now i have to see it at the magic johnson theater in harlem so i got myself on the train and i said the next weekend and i was like i need to see this with an all black audience and it was completely different like watching it for that third time with those three different audiences like i think the third time with the mostly black audience it, i would call it a comedy more than a horror movie because people were much more comfortable laughing at it talking to the screen having their like visceral reactions and those sort of jump scare moments where you're genuinely scared or people have those realizations like oh i know what's going on because it was like the stereotype of black people talking in movies i think that is so perfect for horror movies especially in a theater because you need that catharsis of letting it out of like the don't go in there the oh she's being stupid the i see what's going on like i think those three experiences of watching that movie are like unmatched dude that's very amazing experience yeah i'm so you uh, uh yeah speechless i'm jealous i i hate you, hate you. <laughs> <laughs> what that whole that was like one big flex <laughs> no i'm just kidding Anyway, Mila, what's your mediocre in comparison get out story? <laughs> that would be so fucking mediocre. I saw Daniel Kaluuya on the tube. <laughs> the other day, uh, I went to the sunken place by accident. Um, not like, I don't mean the metaphorical sunken place where you are like entrapped by white racists. I mean the actual experience of being like inside your body. I was basically about to fall asleep and you know when like you're on the cusp of becoming unconscious but you're still like I heard a noise and it like woke me out of that but the process of waking up legit felt like I was sunk inside my body like inside my brain and like rising to fill up my brain again and like my eyeballs it was the most horrible feeling sink into the floor wait 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 wait, wait. sink So what did you think of, like, Rose's character? 
love her queen <laughs> oh Mila this is not <laughs> obviously we I can see her as Marnie from girls the entire time okay but on the low though I feel like Marnie from girls would she would <laughs> what do we th- I read a, a review and it was it's just a general review but it was talking about Rose as a vagina um dentata oh. is that how you say it you know um, she has that scene where she's um, she's talking about how she bit the first boy she oh. ever kissed, and then her whole thing is like a temptress seduc- seduction thing. And like to be clear, I love that like how all of this is done and that she's the villain in the end. Like all honestly, great plot twist. It's just interesting that the the monstrous feminine tropes are invoked there. Like present again um but yeah obviously i hate her i question her as a seductress because i'm like she didn't really do anything seductive <laughs> i feel like almost people were just too trusting of her like she really didn't do anything except for being like i'm liberal and i bought you some breakfast boo like we didn't really see her go out of her way to seemingly be any more appealing like it just seemed as though these people were falling into her web of like blindly trusting someone who appeared to be like an ally and i mean no tea no shade but white women don't have to do much to get a nigga they don't like <laughs> i was like really trying to dance around that and be like i mean they don't have to do much to get black women to get them <laughs> maybe that's the point that, that's but why... i think that's the point yeah i was thinking about the sunken place and like what that means and how it's presented and i thought it was interesting that it's presented as if you're watching a tv and then when he when he's being hypnotized, uh, Missy Armitage is like reminding him of the passivity he did when it led not led to but like his passivity when he did not pick up the phone that could have saved his mother's life potentially if she had uh, if she didn't die on impact. So I was thinking about like that kind of passivity and why it was would be a TV um, and like besides the obvious like spectator thing, it was kind of like what does a TV symbolize? Like, I was like, I think it kind of symbolizes that moment of, like, capitalism or, like, consumerist wealth being brought into the home. So maybe, like, black... This might be a bit of a reach. But black men who, like, passively consume this, like, assimilation tool, such as maybe dating a white woman, is what kind of leads him into the sunken place. Obviously, I'm not trying to blame his character, but I'm just saying I'm picking up on that notion of passivity and, like... You know, how he just, like, goes unquestioningly into this relationship. Y'all get what I'm saying? <laughs> no, yeah, I've totally read something about this, that the life he lives with Rose, like, in their really nice fucking millennial apartment, and also his, like, he, the fact that he's a photographer, which is just, like, hugely overrun by white men. There's, there is, like, a sense that he's living that A privileged sort of life, life, right? Yeah. Like, um, like, a desire for an integration with, like, that kind of wealth. And in the very fact that he's even going to visit this antebellum-style house kind of thing. It's interesting, because, like, when you contrast, like, why Chris was in the song in place versus Lakeith Stanfield, whose name I don't remember. But, like, he has, like, a violent abduction, and he at no point wanted any part of that lifestyle. But Chris, like, goes into the house, and he's 
pretty chill with her family and even though they seem like red flags all over from the beginning he like completely blocks it out even like up until when he knows her parents are trying to kill him or do something to him he's like rose go get the keys and he does not even comprehend that she could be a bad person well, that's like, fair. They, they had like had that quite strong emotional connection like but he had found all those pictures she had even with like the gardener and the maid and he knew that they also knew her and they acted strange. So he had found all these photos and he was still unable to conceive the notion that Rose was the villain. I am not projecting this on to all interrelationship relationships by far because I know people have healthy interracial relationships. But I have friends who are like gong-ho, very woke trademark, and they will date guys who are white, who are extremely problematic, and be like, I know that this person is so redeemable, you cannot convince me that they are a villain, and I'm like, but it's so clear, and like, I feel like Chris has the same relationship to Rose, like, even when it's blatantly clear that she's not the one for him, and her family are villains, she's been doing something sketchy, he's unable to conceive that this person that he's romantically attracted to is also rooted in white supremacy, and I feel like that's kind of hard for some people to conceptualize. There's some sort of, like, lack of instinct for self-preservation i think that a lot of like black folks have of like i don't feel this way about people so i can't imagine that people genuinely feel that way about me because like all the black folks in this movie are being actively hunted and yet even as an audience member you you do a lot of like back bending and like mental flips to try and humanize them whereas like they aren't interested in humanizing the black folks at all they're literally interested in using them for their bodies point blank period and she's been in a whole entire relationship with every single person that they've kidnapped and had at no point had any moment of like switch or empathy and so the fact that you could like look at her in those final moments and think or even that he could look at her in those final moments and think this is not an act of uh self-defense that that he views himself in that moment as a Ooh, killer a and not point. as somebody yeah, defending yeah, yeah. himself one critic reviewed it and was like it maybe not critic but one person was talking about it and they were like it maybe would have been too much if he had killed her like it would have for some people who would see it, it would have flipped the script too much and then he wouldn't have been like as much of a sympathetic character which i think is for the record bullshit but <laughs> um because he'd be completely justified but like maybe it was like I don't know, because choking someone's a really intimate thing to do, um, a really intimate death, right? So maybe it's, like, very, literally hands-on, very up close and personal. No, like, the way he kills everybody else, like, when he, like, rams them with the antlers or fucking, like, the, it's very un-horror movie. Like, usually the victim is so helpless that if, if the villain dies, it's almost by accident, but, like, he- actively kills people and that is something i have never seen in a horror movie it was so cathartic to watch especially in a theater because like you can cheer him on and you don't even get that chance of like feeling bad for people especially when you watch it alone i think that was like very unique ending because you expect everything to go wrong and if you know if what is his name chris if chris was a final girl he would not have been able to like impale folks to get his freedom (laughs) but then there's an alternative ending where he's like in prison Mm -hmm. and his friend is visiting him being like i'm gonna get you out like we're gonna try to get this settled that would have been the worst ending in the world i'm glad it was the ending that it was yeah it would have been if he had been arrested it would have basically just been a repeat it would basically have just been a repeat of like the 1968 night of the living dead film 
where the main protagonist, Ben, is the final girl, final man, just to be shot by the police. And I think, like, while that is the reality of the America we live in, certainly, I think Mm -hmm. much in the same way we have that kill your gaze trope in, like, queer cinema, where we can't imagine, like, a happy ending for queer couples or queer people, and people had to start writing happy endings into existence, even if it wasn't the reality. I think in the same way we have to do that for black cinema, because it's like, Maybe that's not what would have happened, and we know that, but it's the satisfying ending, and it's the ending that we need to start imagining for ourselves, because you can't just see yourself die all the time on screen. Like, there has to be some sort of empowering representation there. And I think it's it's enough that the audience has that moment of when we look over and we see there's a cop court. We have that moment already where we know how it could have gone. And that's, I think that's enough of a switch in our brain that it didn't need to happen. Like, we know white women can weaponize the police they call them they scream you know i know that i knew that he was in jail in the alternate ending i was like i was like very not here for that ending because it just felt too unjust considering what he had already been through but also like the only thing that annoys me about the ending is that we don't get like a a definitive yes that everyone who's already in the sunken place is like going to return to their normal state maybe that's the more like cynical ending that chris is sort of relieved of. Chris escapes and he's granted that happy ending. Um, but you're still left with that like mourning for not just those characters, but like metaphorically everyone within the sunken place. Well, you're left with like a legacy of slavery, basically. Yeah. Because they're still not free. So I still think it's somewhat revolutionary to have the main protagonist be able to escape. And then you do see like, obviously the maid dies and then the other guy kills himself. I mean, it's not a great ending, but they're they're relieved like they're they I don't think they would have been be able to be saved anyway because they had a lobotomy and stuff so I think it would be like you're too far gone yeah that's what that's what I'm wondering yeah I don't think they'd be I don't think they'd be able to get get out did you know though okay so I googled fun fun factoid (laughs) I googled the (laughs) the meaning of Armitage their last name because I was like I wonder and it means hermit, and I just thought that's really ironic, seen as the whole, like, someone, a last name that means stuck in the house, and then the whole plot of the movie is get out of the house. Wait, I thought you were going to make the connection of, like, a hermit crab, and, like, he's in Take somebody else's show, body. Yeah, yeah. Oh my yeah. god, <laughs> you guys. I didn't think of that. <laughs> Holy hell. <laughs> I'm so sorry for shitting on your factoid. You didn't show on it. You both enhanced it, and it made you made it better. Um, honestly, I, that's an obvious miss. <laughs> there are so many of those those like subtle moments, though, that are like nods, nods to history, nods to like language, the buck, the deer, the Olympic runner, the picking cotton. Like all of those things are like things you don't catch on a first watch. Mm. That. That's another really thing. It's, it. it's like a horror movie, which I think more so than others demands a rewatch. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like you said, there's so many layers to it. Like, I didn't even realize his whole stuffing the cotton from the chair into his ears as a means of escaping until I watched it again. It's just like so masterful. I think something that gets super overlooked about like people, like especially white people who like this movie, is like, what don't you Hi. understand that this is about? Like, yeah, that this is about <laughs> you. That like the myth of the good white person or the myth of the white liberal are exactly the people who are saying, "I love Jordan Peele. I loved this film." Like, okay, 
I feel like a lot of white people watched this movie and thought because they noticed all those little hints that they watched it with a critical eye. But a critical eye when watching a film like this is to be like self-reflective. And I don't think a lot of people were self-reflective because even though they're by the end, the family are like horrific, violent villains. What's really insidious about them is their ability to fake it or those like little moments that got memed the hell out of like the dad. I don't even remember what the original line is because it's been memed to death, but like I voted for, <laughs> if I could vote for Obama twice, I would. Or like Green Book is, yeah, Green Book is my favorite like film or like all those, all those little like I'm a good white person lines are things that I heard black people laugh at in the theater and white people miss entirely. Do you think that's interesting? Because like now that people are being trying to be anti-racist, there's so many people who want the conversation around being anti-racist to be very comfortable and not a experience where they look at themselves and see like, oh my God, I've done so many racist things in my life. I can't believe I've done this. I need to be reflective. I need to do better. It's more of like, well, I didn't call anyone the N-word and I don't sing along to rap songs and I give money to black people on the street. It's like a lot of like trying to make yourself feel better and not being able to be reflective, like people wanting ally cookies rather than like wanting to sit back and like honestly understand. I think one of the really tough points that that I don't hear talked about at all is that even if you yourself are anti-racist and you're dating a black person, if it is violent to bring them around your racist family. It is. Like if you haven't done that work in your own community, in your own circles, it's not enough for you personally to be anti-racist. And I don't necessarily believe that everybody is who thinks that they are. But like, don't don't enter a relationship like that if if you yourself cannot conceive of the violence you're enacting or aren't willing to like have those conversations. Because even early on in the movie, she would make like little little jokes about like, oh, we're going to the middle of nowhere, or like, oh we're pulled on the side of the road and you're with a white white woman like that it's not enough that you know that that's dangerous like you actually have to be able to protect your partner from situations like that and i don't think a lot of people do that work but do you think like metaphorically like jordan peele's calling that out because in the end she turns up to be the absolute yeah. potentially worst character so he's like your white liberalism is completely performative and it could very easily be flipped. I mean, obviously not to this extreme, but it can very easily be flipped to a very racist narrative. Also, I think it's very good in general, like showing the microaggressions and like how things that are supposed to be complimentary are actually just really alienating. Like that whole party where they're like, what's it like having sex with a, is it different? Is it different? Is it better having sex with a black man or something like that? And it's just like, those are microaggressions that happen every day that people don't realize are also alienating, even if you mean it as a complimentary, like it's objectifying. Back to what Zayn was saying about like the act of violence of like bringing people into a situation when you know your family is racist. How many times have you like actually heard like a friend be like, I am so liberal, like I came to college and got radicalized, but my family or like my granddad is so racist. Like nearly every white friend that I made in college told me that story and I was like, How is your family racist? Like when my family would say homophobic stuff when I was a kid, I would literally call them out at like 12. When they would say like homophobic stuff to my cousins and stuff, I would immediately call them out and I was a kid. So I'm like, you as an adult being unable to call out your racist parents just does not make sense to me. Like, 
It's yeah. very hard to conceptualize. They love, like, that narrative where people are like, when the old generation dies out, we'll live in harmony. And I'm like, as if we do not see 13-year-old girls pretending to be black on TikTok and doing racist stuff, this is not an older generation thing. This is, like, a continuous thing that has happened. Like, white supremacy is not just with the boomers. It is very much in our generation. And I have no idea why people have such a disconnect where they're like, there's no way that I am racist. Like, as soon as my grandparents die, we will live in racial harmony. And we will be, like, holding hands singing kumbaya. I'm like, that is not true. <laughs> have you missed the demographic of people at Trump's rallies? Like, it's not just people who are old and decrepit. It's, like, young people, too. This is not an old thing. I was gonna say I read um, in an essay called Stay Woke by Kimberly Nichelle Brown. She was talking about um, the, uh, it kind of relates to that object, uh, the microaggressions and that objectification because she was saying like here we have a very, like he is, um, we have like a battle over like the male gaze which is interesting when it comes to horror because usually you'd expect the man or the male protagonist to be a perpetrator or the cameraman to be a a perpetrator of the male gaze but actually in this case he's a photographer and the male gaze actually falls down when we're talking about black men to some degree because historically black men have been the victim of a male gaze which in the form of a slave auctioneer so his choice of profession as a photographer this critic was sort of saying is symbolic because it's like trying to reclaim the whole thing is like um, trying to reclaim that sort of, uh, well, objectification, trying to be, avoid being the object and be in control of your own body, essentially. That I didn't think about, like, when I said at the beginning, I think I was saying, like, how obvious all the stuff that her family did was to the audience. But I'm, like, thinking about in daily life how many microaggressions that you experience and you, it doesn't necessarily red flag you as, like, this person is going to try to hypnotize me and to take my bodily organs. And I think maybe that is, in a sense, meant to make him, although, like, to the audience, you're like, how is he ignoring this stuff? Like, we ignore so many microaggressions in our daily life that it kind of desensitizes you to, like, the blatantly racist microaggressions that happen, even when they do occur. Like, sometimes you don't even catch it until you think back on the incident, like, a few days later, and you're like, oh my god, but, like, I should have read that person for filth. <laughs> like, so, when Chris is in the situation, I can see how in the heat of him wanting to impress his, like, girlfriend's family and them putting on this guy who, like, white liberals, he would be able to dismiss this as, like, microaggressions that he's just rolling off, like, repeatedly until it gets to the point where he realizes it, it is true violence. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, like, I think Daniel Kaluuya uh, does a really good job of that, like, of, in the beginning, almost, like, laughing them off as a survival technique, like, it turns into when he discovers their racism or their performative allyship, he it turns into him being like the classic I told you so couple argument. And it's just kind of like we, we, we kind of went on a rant of his passivity. But actually, you could say, you know, that's that kind of passivity is something that's drilled in to black people, because otherwise you're going to have to have an argument every five minutes. You know what I mean? Like. So I, I'm not trying to say he's like should be blamed for that kind of passivity necessarily because it is you're right it is something that's um just so prevalent every day. It's also like who does society allow to be 
angry. Like, in these instances where Chris maybe does want to, like, really tell her parents off or really be extremely angry, he's not really permitted that space because I feel like in society, black people are not really permitted anger in the same way that white people are without people immediately perceiving threat. Versus we see her parents do so many things that are threatening that are just blatantly perceived as like normal, this isn't a big deal at all because violence and anger are almost exclusively permitted to white people in public space. But I guess that's why you're so, like the ending is so cathartic because it's finally like, yes, we can be so pissed and you can just straight up slaughter them, like impale them with the buck. Like it's like, it's so, cause it's like all pent up throughout the whole film. You've been increasingly as an audience member, depending on, I guess your ethnicity or whatever, or your level of woke, <laughs> um, you've been accumulating this like, rage so it's kind of like a nice release when he finally is had it and i think i think that the sunken place as a concept represents when you've you've reached a point of passiveness that you can't even access the rage anymore like you don't notice the microaggressions or you've internalized things so deeply that it's or you're not in a safe place to express that rage um like that you know the act of hypnosis or whatever i think is even though it happens in a matter of seconds or minutes in the film i think is a process of like years of internalized depression or years of uh passivity as a survival mechanism i like with chris killing rose's family in the ending i almost feel i don't know i feel this way about a lot of horror movies actually but in this one in particular I don't know if I feel like him killing her family out of defense is even like a satisfying thing because it's like the accountability in a way is still erased. And this is like in slasher films as well, when you have to kill the person inflicting horror or pain upon you out of defense, they're not really held accountable and you have to carry all the trauma of having to end their life. I'm like, it's, they're not held responsible in the eyes of justice. All the other people who they kidnapped if he said that they were hypnotizing people and keeping them as slaves, like how many people would believe that story versus if they were actually held accountable and were able, were forced to confess to doing these acts and put in prison. I am not a huge fan of prison, but like in this scenario, like they don't, they're not held accountable and like imprisoned in their own thoughts and held responsible. They're giving like a, almost a mercy because he's forced to do it and he's not a violent person and we see how like kind and like passive he is throughout the thing he's an artist like he doesn't want to go around killing people but he has to have that burden of killing them otherwise they're just going to go on doing the same thing and maybe he'll get away or maybe they'll come after him i think you're i mean totally right uh in the real world <laughs> but maybe that's what the sort of diegetic world and what films grant us is the ability for characters to do these like although it was literal violence maybe more symbolic violence that and that I mean we don't know the film ended but maybe that they are then saved from like the trauma of it but I feel like he was affected by killing them because he couldn't kill Rose like, yeah so like yeah, yeah. he definitely felt something as he was killing them even if it was anger because like he couldn't go through with killing her because of like the emotions attached. So he definitely was feeling stuff in the moment and it was very hard for him to perform these acts. And this isn't taken away from Jordan Phil's artistry at all because I think that was necessary in the movie. 
but it kind of goes to like how things are in the real world as well, in which we don't often see justice in the traditional sense of like being carried through the courts with the police coming and arresting the person, listening to your side of the story, believing you. It's often happened to be carried out in an act of defense and then you're just hoping for the best. I guess that's because like the traditional route of justice is like rigged. It's not, it's not really serving black people. So maybe that's why they have like all films have to imagine like this, which it goes back to what you said about like imagining uh, a happy ending. Maybe that's what these films are sort of, that's like the next step is that actually we imagine the future in which justice is served in that more like traditional sense. Maybe that is yeah. what's next. I guess I hadn't thought about that contradiction because I was looking at them as figures of like, like metaphor, each family member is a metaphor for a specific type of racism that's enacted like if rose is a sort of fetishizing then her dad is a sort of white liberal and then her brother is the actual like not actual but like more violent face of racism you know so i kind of was like yes die because you know it's like symbolic it's a symbolic defeat but i didn't really think about the level of like then who's accountable i guess maybe perhaps rose because you don't know for sure if she does die I mean, yeah. she's left bleeding in the street, but you never see her die. And, and that's, that's my kind that's of That's a clue any for crime. any horror movie. Yeah, any any horror, any crime, if you don't see them guts spilling out, and even sometimes then, then they're not really dead. But then there's also, like, the chance that she could get up, patch herself up from said incident, and then go on living her life doing the exact same thing that she was already doing. So that's what I'm saying, like, the, the sense of, like, mm. true justice where you're like, yes, like, you get it in Halloween, Halloween and prom night, you get this sense of true justice where the killer is arrested and you're like, oh, they never have to bear that burden of knowing this person is coming after them. But he doesn't get that. I guess the limitation of that is buried in the very title of the movie, which is the only aim is to get out. It's not to serve justice. You know, like the movie's not called Justice. Like, all we can accomplish is actually the bare minimum. You know what I mean? I love that. The movie's like, not called Justice. Time. No, I did not. That sounded like kind of. No, that sounded snarky. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. I just meant like, you know, it's the fact that you can only. The only form of empowerment is like the bare minimum, which is just escaping. Like, that's the only goal. So it's the fact that it's like you can't. There's no imagination beyond actually serving justice and yeah it's impossible as of yet so essentially the only thing that he can get out with is like literally his life that's the only thing that he gets out with he can't save anyone else or anything which i think is like the point of the movie like you're saying is like the bare minimum that we're lucky to get out with is our life um and in other situations you just end up like everyone else Mm. so i get what you mean i just would have loved for there to be true justice in the film because it kind of sucks that we can imagine her getting up from this incident going to literally anywhere and no one asking why she has these injuries and immediately treating her and her being able to go right back to the same antics like that's not a far off thing to imagine maybe we should write to jordan peele and say we want a sequel we want a sequel where rose goes off and tries to do it again and then she's held the fuck accountable I feel like a sequel, would, a sequel would be great where we're in the current political climate that we are in now and there is this more skepticism to is this person racist or are they white liberal not racist in quotation marks and more people are willing to question her 
in a way where we see Rose being like her same self. She's woken up from a coma after her injuries. She tries to get up to her antics and then she's put in her place properly and goes to jail. But then it goes back to like how to imagine just, I guess that would have to be another thing where we write in a more positive ending to the justice system. Cause then again, you're relying on prison. Like you'd have to, she, she'd be yeah. like in real America, she'd be able to just buy her way out and like get an attorney and get off, you know? Because I'm like, in this scenario that we've really, that I've put into the universe where she survives this, at this point she would literally inherit all of her parents' money, so she would have a bottomless pit of money to do whatever she wants. This is truly just turned into a bigger nightmare than the mm. first one. I have a friend who instead of like, you know, people are like, go to jail, or like, I'm calling the cops, she started saying, send them to the restorative justice tribunal. <laughs> just like, imagine a different scenario where it's like, a panel of fucking like Maxine Waters and Judge Judy and you have to like face the consequences of like <laughs> the communities whatever they decide is the retribution you deserve but that, I think yeah a sequel would have to be an alternate universe dude like it, it's not the yeah. one that we're in this is so like not funny haha but funny like how we literally cannot conceptualize a world where true accountability is being served like that's that's insane that we've hit this not insane it's completely believable but we've completely hit a brick wall here yeah because we are all in agreement that rose would somehow recover from this and literally not be held accountable in any way and go back to her same lifestyle but also i definitely agree with what they say about jail and prison i'm definitely not the hugest fan but also like I don't even know what punishment would fit Rose in this situation. I don't know what I would give her. I don't know. They have, like, Scandinavian prisons are, like, very functional. I think, like, the max sentence you can get is, like, 10 years. And you get bunnies and stuff and, like, learn how to be a better person. But also, that is assuming that we think Rose has the capability to reach humanity. No. She's done. She's gone. That's Maybe that's why they have to die. Yeah. Have you seen the way she eats cereal? She deserves to be choked out. Yeah. Can we talk about it? I was the most, like, just jarring seeing her. It's like the smile at the end. It's like another uncanny. I'm like, ugh. And also just like the biggest white signaler. I don't know why. It was just really funny. <laughs> sorry, Mila. Hashtag sorry, Mila. <laughs> It's the first time we said it this episode. Oh yeah, we haven't, um, it was... I'd love to hear it more, that'd be great. Every time a white person gets slated, it's hashtag, sorry Mila. What What do you guys make of the the use of a phone flash being something that frees you from the sunken place? I'm thinking like in the way that technology is so accessible to people now, it can take you to places all over the world and you can become more socially aware in the way that you weren't able to in the past. And the phone is like a link to technology. And so it can bring you out of ignorance or oppression. But I feel like that's a colossal reach that I just made up. No, I think it's useful like if the whole song if the problem of the sunken place is that you're literally stuck inside yourself then a phone being able to show you beyond your doorstep is really important right but also like you know if the tv is what is the passive sort of thing then the phone is a very active medium in comparison so we have a transition from passivity to activity or action rather and the whole thing of like the phone being a way of getting evidence, like when he takes a picture of the victim, that's how he's able to connect. 
that this has been happening um, aligns with like the BLM movement and how we need to record and document the terrible things that are happening in America in order to raise awareness, which I have problems with watching those videos anyway, but you know what I mean? So it's, it's certainly seems to be like a very um, apt medium to choose. Yeah, also in the way that like media on a television is controlled and the way that it's fed mm. to you because someone else is curating what clips they show versus what you choose to look at on your cell phone is your complete choice. And if you choose to find a news network distrustworthy, you can not read news from them versus on the TV, you can't really go away from it. You can change the channel, but everything is still going to have the same angle in a way that something on social media or something posted on YouTube may not have mm. it's a, yeah i guess it's about like that open um sort of ended form of creation open sort of internet rather than um closed encoded messages of tv well thanks guys that was such a great conversation thank you all for listening to the monstrous feminine be sure to follow us on instagram and soundcloud at the monstrous feminine podcast and subscribe to our youtube channel please leave us lots of comments we'd love to hear what you think Brooms up, which is out.